Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Coolangatta podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. In a world that is dominated by narratives of fear, anxiety, and worry, what does it mean that joy is not dependent on outward circumstances, but on the inner state of one's heart? You've joined us in our series, Philippians, where we are exploring what Paul meant when he wrote to have joy in everything and the importance of living in unity among believers for the sake of the gospel. We pray that this message is a blessing. Uh, welcome to church. We are going to be opening up our Bibles. If you have your Bible, this is the moment to go ahead and open them up. We're going to Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. And whilst you do that, if you haven't met me before, my name is David Scambry. I get the absolute pleasure of being one of the pastors here at New Life Gatta, And we are on week 7 out of 7 in our Philippians series. And for the more discerning of you, perhaps you've noticed that all the other times we said 6 out of 6 uh, weeks that this series was going and suddenly we push it out to seven. Let me tell you why. Philippians is, a, is worth it. It sounds like a L'Oreal advert, but Philippians is worth it. It's a beautiful book with incredible theology. And, and we just said, man, how do we squeeze all this in a six weeks? Let's push it out to seven because we, we want to get more out of it. So in just a moment, I'm going to walk through uh, the book of Philippians and how it ties into this theme of joy. But before we do that, I want to invite us to reflect and to read the scripture, how Paul closes this entire letter off. So verse 10, join me. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet, it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. If you've had one of those uh, really satisfying moments, like those kind of like you're just so content. I think back, I don't know if you remember it, to those old um, Coca-Cola adverts. You know, they flip the lid, they, 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 the fizz comes out, they take a sip, and then you hear this, and they're just sighing in satisfaction, right? I think back to those. Have you ever had a moment like that? Are you in a season right now where you know what it is to be content? In this room, as you sit, do you feel the kind of satisfaction that in the Scripture Paul invites us to know? My hope for today is that we might, like Paul, uncover what it means to be, uh, to be uh, content in all circumstances, 
My hope is that we might, like the Philippian church, come to know uh, how to prioritize the gospel even over our current circumstance. And finally, my hope is that as a church, we might believe just a, a degree more, just a teeny step more, that God is really and truly a God who wants us to be satisfied, who cares about our experience in life. And we might, as we uncover that truth a tiny bit more, take a step a teeny bit more into living in response to it. Big plan. How about you join me in prayer? Holy God, I thank you that your love and your mercy and your kindness, it's in this room. It's here available for us to know. That as you stir by your spirit and you give us reason to pause, to breathe in and to remember that you are loving, that you are close, that you care for us. Lord, I praise you that you have a purpose and a plan for us, that we would find true satisfaction, true contentment, and not be in the slavery, enslaved by our experiences and stuff. So Holy Spirit, come and move. Show us the rhythms that you wish us to know and us to live in. In the powerful, mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Verse 10, here's what it says. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. This letter to the Philippian church, it's this beautiful exposition. I mean, I'm going to brag and rave about how good this letter is for as long as you will ever know me. But I just want to say it again. It is filled with rich theology and beautiful revelation of Christian living, experience, and expectation. It is a stunning letter. And all the way throughout it, there is this theme of joy, just, just totally coating it. And what I want to do is show you the theology that Paul was hoping that by reading the letter of the Philippians, uh, we would discern and receive about what joy means to the Christian faith. What we would do is, as we read this, realize that joy is not some superfluous or peripheral Im uh, image that we could not really concern ourselves with, but we hope someday we would experience it anyway. Rather, it is central. Rather, it is something to be considered, thought about, prioritized in the way we do our Christian living. So how does he do this? Well, in Philippians chapter 1, he opens up with this theme by explaining to us or introducing to us what joy is. And he does it with this verse, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This is the first mention of joy. It's the first theme introduced in this whole book. And he says it's, he feels joy because of an experience, because of a circumstance, but then finishing that chapter up, there's a second joy or a second word he introduces us to that reveals the, the, the superpower of joy. And the word is rejoice. It is rejoice. And what it is, it's an invitation for us to experience joy once again despite the circumstances we are facing. So he introduces joy. He then gives us a bunch of examples, the first being Jesus, which, you know, anyone who hears Jesus being the example, what's the first thing we think? We go, yeah, well, I'm not Jesus, you know. 
like the first thing we think. And so he finishes Philippians chapter 2 by giving two more examples of people the Philippian church knew really well. Uh, And he showed how those people also would suffer and experience difficulty in the progress of the gospel and somehow perpetually experienced the joy that strengthened them to continue. And so chapter 3 begins, and we've, we've got the basics of joy wrapped up, and he opens it up, and perhaps you ask yourself right now, is what is the substance of joy? What is the substance of joy? In what do we find our joy? If joy is something we can experience as a consequence of a situation, if joy is something we can experience when that situation has long passed, in what do we find our joy? And he starts off the chapter by commanding us and inviting us to rejoice in the Lord. And he says, do it always and do it again and do it often. This is the joy we're called to find. This is the substance of a joy. And he does it by wrapping it up in this beautiful gospel invitation where he points out that we have no cause for joy outside of the immense and unfailing love of God. Every good work and good thing we bring to the table falls short. The Lord, the Lord is our source of joy. And then perhaps the more practical-minded in the room goes, yes, but how do we have joy? And so he goes into chapter 4 by opening this whole idea of, of, of the how, the practice of joy. And the first thing he teaches us in kind of 4, 4 to 9 is, that the way, is the ways we can find joy in our inner person. And here's how he says we do it. He says, first of all, We bring our concerns and our anxieties before God who cares for us, remembering that he is the the, the image of a peace that surpasses all understanding. And in that peace, that image is guarding our hearts and our minds. And he says, now that you've released that, now that you've released that to God in prayer, turn the attention of your mind to what is true and what is honorable and what is of good repute and so on and so forth. And so perhaps in this room, you can perceive where the final part of the practice of joy leads. Um, But what is left? It is, it is, well, how do we rejoice despite our external circumstance? How do we rejoice? Yes, I know how to rejoice in my inner person, but how do I rejoice when my outer experience is chaos and messy? And how do I rejoice when I have everything and I'm still not feeling what I hope to feel? How do we rejoice despite our outer reality? So how does he open this up? How does Paul go into this? He opens by telling us uh, that he is rejoicing in the Lord as a consequence of something the Philippian church had done. Read verse 10 with me. It says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Something of the concern of the Philippians prompted something uh, within Paul that led him to have a great deal of joy. And I don't know if you're as cynical as I am, but I'm unfortunately quite cynical. So I go, well, yeah, he got money. No wonder he's so excited and so he's got this great joy. And Paul is so quick to point this out, this little fact. Verse 11, he caveats, he clarifies verse 10 by saying this, I am not saying this because I'm in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. So what Paul says is, I feel great joy because the Philippians renewed their concern, but the first thing I need to clarify is this joy isn't found in the fact that I got a gift. This joy is found in something else. But before he gets to that something else, Paul feels it's necessary for us to understand something first. And so he caveats the whole reason he finds joy 
in this deeper truth. Read verse 11 again with me. It says, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the, seeking, the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength, through him who gives me strength. Now, we all know that this verse is the most taken out of context verse in the Bible. We all know that me lying, uh, if I went to the gym, me lying uh, at the gym beneath the bench press with 5,000 kilos on the bar, which would break the bar, but that's fine. It's an analogy. And trying to push it and just crying out, I can do all things through him who gives me. It's not going to move, right? It's not what it's saying. It's not saying that if you just go and buy a lottery ticket, you can win that through him who gives you strength. And if you just... uh, Bet and gamble on where you're going to invest your money. Well, he gives you strength to win it. He's not saying that if we don't put the work in, we're going to get HDs on our next assignment. What he's saying is this, in spite of the circumstance you face, in spite of the outer reality going on, whether you're well-fed or whether you're hungry, whether you have it all or you're having nothing, whether life's going the way you predicted or whether life seems to have taken a U-turn, scrambled somewhere in the middle, and you're lost on a roller coaster, right? He says, hey, Something about God, something about Jesus is able to keep us content, satisfied, and okay, no matter what. So what Paul has come to discover is that God is able to pivot our hearts from our dependence on circumstance and stuff to true liberty and contentment from an outward experience. I wonder today if we're a room of people who want liberty. I wonder if we're a room of people who want freedom, whether we, we're kind of, we're, you know, we're on the system, we're on life support, we're sucking up whatever it is we can get of this broken and dying system. We don't care as long as, you know, we feel pleasurable, comfortable, and distracted. But what happens when it changes? And what we learn from the scripture is that our God is a God who cares. Our God is a God who's interested in our experience. It teaches us that God's love for us is so rich that he doesn't want us to be bound to our external experience to feel some sense of peace, satisfaction, and and, and the being of okay. No, in, in the place of that, God says, what I want you to have is life and life abundantly. God cares about how we feel. The God of the universe wants us to draw so close that we can trust him when all the spiritual forces, all the world and our own internal hearts are yelling, you can't, you can't. In the 17th century, there's a theologian, brilliant theologian, his name's John Flavel, and he has this great quote on the topic of contentment. He says this, a contented Christian is a little emperor. He sits upon the throne of his own heart and commands all his outward comforts and enjoyments to wait upon him. Friends, I want to be a little emperor. It sounds adorable. I just want to say that. Um, But I wonder, as I ask today, who here can honestly say that they sit on the throne of their own hearts? Because I know if I went around and had a conversation with almost everyone in the room, the reality is the vast majority would admit that what they actually experience in the throne of their hearts is this strange, difficult, and turbulent tug of war right? that's happening between our desire to be like God and to trust Him and His kingdom moving in our lives. But on the other end of this tug of war, we've got our feelings and our fear and our sinful natures. And it's like, man, do I want to give the throne to God where I'm comfortable, where it's safe, where it doesn't cost me, where it's not hard, but in all the other spots, 
oh man, I am in a turbulent tug of war for that throne, right? And what Paul is saying here is that he has found a freedom, a liberty, a breakthrough in the giver of his strength. And what I wonder today is whether the giver of strength you're looking to is the same giver of strength that Paul was looking to. I wonder at the root of things when you're feeling out of order and in chaos and like you've got no handle on life, where is your primary need found? Is it money? Is it status? Is it promotion? If you just have these things, you'll feel secure. If only those things were taken care of, then I could look at God. Is it achievement or applause or social media? Is it your wife? Is it your husband? Is it your kids? Is it pleasure? Is it euphoria? Is it experiences? Friends, filled with a genuine love, I have to let you know this. Each and every single one of those things are tied, bound to circumstance, and all of them can tumble in an instant. None of them are safe holds for our lives and for our sense of security and contentment in life. And the thing is, no one in this room is shocked. I don't see any jaws on the floor. We all know this. We all know this. So why are we so deeply convinced that some of these things are the thing we need to be okay? And I think to answer this, we actually have to, to look back because, you know, we're sitting in a room here, we look around, and, and it's not like it's just us in this room dealing with this. It's not like we look around and go, wow, we're the broken ones. No, there are like 8 billion people on this planet, and like 8 billion of them are dealing with this same thing. And maybe you think, wow, this modern age, it's just, wow, you know, young people these days, it's just so bad or whatever. I, I want to let you know this isn't a modern issue. This is an issue that predates written history. If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, right, there is this spiritual battle happening. A serpent enters a garden, and this serpent represents his rebellion against God. And this serpent comes in to bring this rebellion to people. And in coming, what he does is, is, he, is he reveals the nature of the spiritual war we all face. This is some of the part of what he says. For God knows that when you eat it, it's being when you rebel. Your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice how a part of the devil's argument for rebelling against God was the promise of more, was the promise of what we could get, the promise that we would be more satisfied, more content, and more okay if we, instead of trusting the goodness of God, rebelled and did it our way. Friends, our dependence on things that cannot satisfy is a deeply spiritual battle. And we see all around us, this battle is so perpetuated by culture. Uh, it has been for as long as humans have gathered in groups, but it's especially bad in today's world. And, the, and it's bad by design, because the way the culture works, we call it consumerism, the way the culture works, right, makes a lot of people a lot more money than they know what to do with, and they somehow think that that's a good thing for them, and, and even though it's not a good thing for most other people. But here's the thing, it's bad by design. It's bad because we're subject to, and unfortunately we contribute to, a culture that intentionally breeds dependence, dependence on things that can't satisfy. There's a quote from 1927, I love it. And for context, it's off the back of World War I, so the scarcity of World War I was, was terrifying. And this guy called Paul Mazur, he sees an opportunity to leverage the impact of the Industrial Revolution to create a level of wealth not yet known to people in the world. This is what he was quoted saying. We must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. 
People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. I use iPhones, but let me tell you right now, I am tempted every year when they announce a new iPhone to buy it, and my current iPhone works perfectly fine. This is the culture that has been shaped around us. This is the culture. It is intentional. We live in a culture that tells us if we don't have a certain repertoire of stuff, or if our lives don't match a certain ideal, we are outcasts. We are less significant, less influential. We have less opportunity. And in doing this, it breeds a fear that has the power to keep us paralyzed and playing along, even when we know it's not quite right. And this is why when Jesus comes to this earth and he walks with humans, he thinks it's a priority to talk about this. You know, he does this whole discourse in Matthew 6 about this idea of contentment. And in verse 24, this is what he says. No one, no one, friends, I know you think you're the one that can. Let's read Jesus' words again. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Notice how the God of the universe is paying attention to our peace, to our satisfaction. He is intervening to teach us a better way of being. This is who our God is. He just cares. And I don't know if in this room everyone here knows that God is a God who cares. But this is who he is. And he reveals to us in this verse how dangerous our view of stuff and wealth can be. Because in that word he uses for money, which is better translated to wealth, he actually uses a very specific um, uh, saying, a very specific word, uh, mammon. And the way he uses the word, uh, he actually references a Syrian deity for wealth. In other words, what he's saying is this. That that thing that you have burning a hole in your pocket, that thing that you just think is buying you Maccas on the way home, that thing that you pay your rent, uh, your mortgage, and all your life's things with, that thing, money, is a personal, spiritual force that is competing with God for your heart. Stuff and wealth is a spiritual force competing with God for our hearts. It's not neutral. Now, we got to use money. I'm not saying burn it all, let's live on a mountain, you know, whatever, let's start a cult. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we got to be aware of its danger. we got to be aware that Jesus wasn't content saying it was neutral. He wasn't content saying it's just an object. He needed us to know that it has a powerful spiritual force. Stuff and wealth and circumstance competes with God for the livelihood, the living, the thriving of our hearts. So what we face when we talk about contentment, it's not altogether just a conversation about circumstance and stuff. In reality, it's the fact that we are in a war for our very hearts, a war over what we will allow to form us and what we will choose to worship. Favell actually goes on uh, to talk about contentment again, and he says this, contentment is a pearl of great price, and whoever procures it at the expense of 10,000 desires makes a wise and happy purchase. See, Jesus, our God, he wants us to know the real joy of contentment. He recognizes that being contented, I I know we think, man, if I just have this desire, if I just have that desire, if I just have this desire, I'll be okay. But but what Jesus and and, and later on a theologian Flavel says is that, hey, if you were to lose all of those desires but find contentment, 
you'd find a richness that far surpasses whatever they fail to live up to the promise of. Because nothing in this world, apart from Jesus, can meet the promise it makes to us to make us whole and okay and satisfied. It's only Jesus. What we're facing right now is a spiritual adversary, rivaling God for our affection, for our attention, and ultimately for the throne of our hearts. And it's waging a war of promises, like I said, that nothing can come close on earth to delivering. And what God tells us, and this is what he wants us to know, is that even though we're in this war, there is a victory bringer. There is one who breaks through the darkness. There is one who is strong enough to weather every season, to weather every circumstance, every lack, and also every gain. His name is Jesus, and he wants us to find our freedom from slavery to circumstance and stuff, and in its place, be content and alive and thriving as we are in this moment, despite what's going on around us. And Paul believes this. This is his experience. This isn't an idea. This isn't a philosophy. This isn't a theology. This isn't some idea that we might one day be able to draw in our brains and then one day might be able to, you know, uh, imagine in our realities. This is something Paul lived in. And what he wanted us to know, the readers of this letter to know, before he would tell us why he rejoiced that the Philippians had renewed the concern, was this fact that there is a war of our souls happening with stuff, possessions, and circumstance, but there is a victory that is possible and that we can begin to lay claim of, claim of today. Verse 14, Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. So with all this in mind, Paul begins to reveal why the Philippian church's generosity began to bring him joy. And he does it by highlighting that this isn't the first time the Philippians have given to Paul. This is a habit. They've done it before. They're doing it again. When COVID hit, I decided, I decided it was time for me to live out one of my childhood dreams uh, that I never got the opportunity to do. Uh, And so I I bought a skateboard, and I decided to learn how to skateboard. This is a true story. I have scars to prove it. Um, But I decided to learn how to skateboard. And, you know, there's no one around, so what better time? And you don't know, some of the the paths in, like, Southport and stuff are the smoothest thing you'll ever experience. So I went with a friend. I'm learning to skateboard. And every time I did anything, I thought, ooh, that's pretty cool. I can skateboard, you know. Every time I did that, he would go, two to make it true. Two to make it true. And I was like, bro, what does two to make it true even mean? And he said this, if you can't do it twice, you couldn't really do it. You just fluked it. And I was like, oh, that's true. Two to make it true. And I think this is what Paul was pointing to here. This wasn't a one-time fluke by the Philippians where they did something generous or renewed their concern. This is a habit. This is a character. And what it does is it reveals something to Paul. And what it reveals is that God had done a character work inside of the Philippian church. God had given a healing to the people of the Philippian church in such a way that they stood out as unique, even among the other churches. It was a victory, a miracle. You see, what Paul rejoiced over was the fact that the Philippian church was beginning to taste some of the liberty he was tasting. Verse 17, the second half of it says this, what I desire, what brings me joy, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. Paul's rejoicing was steeped in his confidence, in his 
confidence that God was bringing to the Philippian church a new liberty, a new healing, a new heart, a, 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 a pearl of great price, a new contentment, true contentment, a reward worth more than 10,000 desires. This whole section was Paul's encouragement to these people to press on. It is worth it. And friends, in this room today, do we believe that it's worth pressing on? Do we believe that it is worth it to to replace desires with contentment, to wage war for the throne of our souls, to not be bound and held captive by every whim of circumstance and stuff, but in its place, get to know the living Lord Jesus who has and will forever be enough? Do we believe it's worth it? Because Paul says, I'm tasting this. I'm living this. This is real. And you can begin to taste it too. In um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, uh, in the ESV it says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From one degree of glory to another. One degree isn't much, guys. If someone says, hey, can you move one degree? I wouldn't even know if I moved. I wonder today in what ways we can begin to resist the hold of consumerism in our lives. You know, when I started writing this sermon, and all throughout the week, as I was writing it, one of the hardest struggles I had is that I'm writing a sermon about something where I'm not even there yet. I'm not even close. So much of this stuff, I'm just chewing on and mulling on and tasting for the first time. And you know, like theologically, I'm reading this and I'm like, I believe this. Like, I theologically, I, I, I ration that my God is loving, my God is sufficient, my God is able. If he died on a cross for me, dang straight I'll trust he's going to provide for me. Clearly he cares. He suffered immensely. Theologically, I'm like, I, I get it. But we all know there's a pretty big gap from here to here. And when I walk through life and I reflect on the ways I spend money, and the ways I worry about circumstances and the things I put my attention and fear on, the things where I say, well, God, if I just can get this in place, I'll turn my attention to you now. I know for me, I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with this. But I believe the words of Scripture. And I find hope that maybe I could move a degree, a degree from where I am right now towards more belief that my Jesus cares enough to meet my needs, to be sufficient no matter what the story of life says. And I I believe I can move a degree towards living in response to that. How can we resist the hold of consumerism? The power of the fear of missing out. Anyone else? The belief in, in magic thinking that if I just get one more promotion, if I just make that one more friend, if I just have that one improvement, then I will taste the joy that will satisfy me forever. Are we willing to progress one degree today towards the liberty and the healing and the contentment that Jesus desires for us? Are we willing to wage a war for the throne of our hearts? In what ways will we come before God this day as we worship and let him lead us to believe he is a sufficient strengthener, a friend, and a profound cause for rejoicing in. Because it's only when we begin to believe in this that we can begin to move, begin to heal. And I find the real good news is is the contentment isn't just imagining we're okay when life all around us is going bad. 
The promise in Scripture is, is that God won't let us go without. Now, we might not get that beautiful red Ferrari. We might not get that brand, shiny, that, that brand new shiny Tesla. But we're never going to go without. You know, we read before in Matthew 6, 24, where Jesus teaches us that wealth is a spiritual force. And it was part of a whole section where he spoke about it. And the very next verse, he actually continues what he's saying. And he says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable to him than they are? Can any one of you, by worrying at a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the fields grow. They do not labor, they do not spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. For that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans, the non-Christians, run after these things. Why? Because they don't know your heavenly Father. Because it says in your heavenly Father, he knows what you need. He knows that you need these things. He knows that you need these things. And he's a heavenly father. So seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. What is this that the God of the universe, who crafted interstellars, the cosmos, suns, stars, oceans teeming with life that, that boggles our brains to imagine. How is it this, the God of the universe knows what you and I need and cares enough to step in? Not just the physical needs, not just the needs of the heart, but in Philippians chapter two, it tells us that Jesus, God himself, he emptied himself, poured himself out, gave of himself entirely until he had nothing more. He gave all he could. And he came onto this earth and walked among people that he might relate to us, that he may experience life with us, that he may face the struggles and the difficulties we face, that he may fellowship in our pain and fellowship in our suffering. And having done this, after three years of ministry, he steps up onto a cross and suffers immensely, immensely. Not just physically, but beyond physically, paying the wage, the cost of all of the times we've ever rebelled against God. Why? so that we could be welcomed back into the arms of a father who cares. So that we can be welcomed back to the love, the embrace, the relationship, and the joy that God has for us. So friends, I say it today, rejoice in the Lord. Let's learn the secrets to making this our priority. Let's rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say it, rejoice. Would you join with me in prayer? Lord, I thank you that you are moving, that you are in this room, that you are renewing hearts, that your spirit is doing wonderful things. 
thank you, my God, that we can trust. We can have confidence. We can have certainty that you care for us, that you're present in our difficulty, that you, it says in the Bible, have walked all the pains, all the tribulations, and all the sufferings. You fellowship with us when we face difficult circumstances, and your desire is that in the face of them, for this short season on earth where we experience them, we'd find our satisfaction, our contentment, a true sense of being okay in you and you alone. Maybe in this room with all eyes closed and with all heads bowed, perhaps this gospel of Jesus, this gospel of love, this good news that reaches our ears about a God who richly and deeply cares about our lives and our experiences. Perhaps this is the first time you've heard or first time you've, you've really heard. And perhaps in this moment, you, you desire to respond and just say, I don't know what this looks like, but I can move a degree. I can move one degree towards God today. I can open my heart for every one degree we move towards him, a thousand miles he moves towards us. And I can open my heart and I can say, God, I don't know if you're real. I don't know if you're hearing me. I don't know if you're here, but I'm open. Come. Maybe that's you in this room today. I just want to invite you to raise your hand. Everyone's eyes are closed. Everyone's heads are bowed. Come on. If you want to make Jesus your Savior for the first time or perhaps returning, just raise your hand. Come on. So good. Lord, I thank you that you're moving in this place. I thank you that you're stirring in this place. I thank you that you're drawing lost and wounded hearts back to yourself in this place. Lord, we praise you because you're a God who cares enough to be here to be with us right now. That for those who don't know you, you welcome them. And for those of us who are learning to know you, on the journey of knowing you, one degree at a time, you're moving and working and flowing in our lives to liberate us from the slavery this world keeps throwing at us. The slavery we keep realizing we didn't even know we were in. And you see it and you're moving and you're liberating. So my God, keep up your healing. We praise you, we glorify you, we thank you for you are a great God and you bring contentment, satisfaction, life and liberty to every one of us in this room more and more every day. In the name of Jesus, that healed, cleaned and sets free every heart in this room, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page.